Okay, I assume we're good to go. Yes. All right. Once again, welcome, church, to our Sheepgate Fellowship service, December 26th. I hope all of you had a safe and fun and wonderful Christmas. I know some of us, our family plans were canceled due to uh, rising cases of COVID and spread of the variant and et cetera. So that's unfortunate. Um, but we are here today gathered in the house of the Lord. Uh, and if you're at home, you're gathered here in some sense, I suppose. But uh, let's just join our hearts together as if we were physically here together uh, to read God's word. So if you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we will read the first 13 verses of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Now quickly to remind you of what we read in chapter 9 uh, and 8. 8, of course, dealt with the food sacrificed idols and the stumbling of brothers who are weaker. And then you, in chapter 9, Paul spoke of his own personal anecdote, his example, his own example, right? I'm free. I have this defense of this right as an apostle to exercise these things, but I also have the right to exercise, not to use that liberty. And he gave his own example. And at the very end of it, he talked about running the race, right? And that was sort of the imperative we looked at at the end of chapter 9. Let's read chapter 10 together, verses 1 to 13. I'll read from my Bible. You follow in yours. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act uh, immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's go to our unreached people group of the day as we continue to pray for world missions and the spread of the gospel globally in unreached people groups. Today's unreached people group come from Morocco. They are known as the Zekara Berber of Morocco. And there are 76,000 of these people, uh, only 0.02% Christian, mainly, uh, mainly uh, an Islamic people group. So they're Muslims. Uh, so we'd like to pray for them. And we have to pray for their salvation. They live, um, they lived in Northern Africa, um, and then of course with Arabs and Islam coming in, uh, a lot of the Christian heritage, the rich Christian heritage that existed in this community, uh, got lost. And so today they are mainly an Islamic group. Uh, but we would like to pray for them. We like to pray for the once again Zakara Berber of Morocco and the world. Um, continue at least here locally. I like to pray for a couple things. A little bit closer to home today. Uh, one, let's pray for uh, our city, our province, our home. Um, our family and friends are here. So, you know, with COVID cases now, I think, yes, I think we this morning it was over 10,000 cases 
Um, thankfully, uh, hospitalization and deaths are not at an all-time high, um, and at least for now, controllable. Uh, but obviously, it's not a great situation for us to be in. Uh, so we'd like to pray for that. We'd like to pray for um, just our communities, our loved ones to be safe. And then even closer to home, our own church here, uh, there are some of us, uh, anonymous, I'll leave them anonymous, but some of us who are dealing uh, with, you know, contact tracing and or isolation due to COVID. Um, and so we'd like to pray for them, pray, pray for their recovery and safety. They may or may not have COVID, but, you know, just they're just being cautious. And so we just want to pray that uh, recovery would be uh, upon them and uh, that they obviously won't deal with any sort of long-term repercussions of these things. So yeah, pray for our own community here, our own brothers and sisters, uh, and hope uh, for better days to come. Let's pray, and we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this day. We thank you for every day, no matter how dark or bleak it may look from the human perspective. It's just common grace to have life, to have air to breathe, to have food to eat, to have water to drink, to have friends and family to care for. Um, and even in the midst of a pandemic and we're dealing with health issues, uh, we intercede for them, O, o Lord, uh, that their hope would be in Christ, that their love, that the love of their life and the love that they experience in life would come from you and be you. And Lord Father, we also pray uh, that this would be a time of continual growth and maturity in faith and in wisdom. We also pray, Lord God, for our own community here in the church, for our brothers and sisters who are uh, maybe struggling as a result of what's going on with COVID. We pray for recovery and health. We pray for the safety and well-being of our loved ones, as well as our city and our province and our country. We ask, O oh Lord, that amidst the highest level of COVID cases ever in this province, that still, um, that Lord, that they would be uh, kept safe um, and that you would just uh, keep them well, Lord Father, um, as we pray and intercede for them and hope for this season to pass once again. God, we also pray uh, for our unreached people group of the day of Morocco, the Zakara Berber. We pray for their salvation. We pray for, Lord God, the true message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ reached reach them um, and that they would hear this good news and that they would come to believe. We pray, oh God, for open hearts. pray for salvation in this community. Thank you, Father. And we go into the Word seeking, once again, insight, truth, and wisdom. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, our sermon is entitled, Do Not Be Idolaters. Do not be idolaters. I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty much the thesis point, so you can fall asleep at this point. Um, no, don't fall asleep. Um, but yeah, that's the main point. It is the crux of what Paul is trying to get at here. There's a lot of nuances that I think are really helpful for us to look at. Chapter 8 dealt with, if you remember two chapters ago, so two Sundays ago now, it dealt with the initial question of consumption of food that was sacrificed to idols, if you remember. And in that chapter, Paul focused on the blindness of the believer in considering the repercussions or consequences of such actions in the midst, in the view of weaker brothers and sisters, right? Weaker quotation marks. His advice was to avoid that, that which caused stumbling in others. And so he addressed the heart issue of the question that was posed to him. But Paul returns to that initial question and that matter, and today concisely provides an answer in the passage. Paul breaks down in systematic form why the exact practice of eating such foods, sacrifice to idols, or meals, 
in the presence of the ungodly is not condoned and is certainly not permitted. Now also on the heels of Paul's exhortation in chapter 9, at the end of it, to run the race seeking what? The eternal prize of Christ. He then now transitions to the teaching of today's passage, which, de- which deals with a detailed look at what running looks like on a daily basis. We begin today in our passage with Paul's argument on the basis of historical, theological, and scriptural reference, as he so commonly does. He adheres to the Israelites of the past, of the Old Testament, and looks to their example of what not to do before the Lord. The conclusion is thus simple and concise. Such foods, at least in Paul's opinion, are best not to be eaten. And he's going get to get into why that is, okay? So although we have the liberty to eat these things, Paul's opinion is we shouldn't. Two points to today's sermon. First, verses 1 to 5, it's broken into halves basically. Verses 1 to 5 looks at Israel, the example, or the example of Israel, right? Israel, the example. And then the second part, 6 to 13, verses 6 to 13 look at, looks at the warning, the heed of today's text, the warning of idolatry. So let's look at the first thing, Israel, the example, verses 1 to 5. Now, many of the Old Testament images and narratives serve the church as an example of what not to do, right? The Old Testament um, purposes in that way. They act, um, the Old Testament, they act like the laws themselves. Israel acts like the law themselves as a means for the church to see the reflection of its own sinfulness and sinful tendencies today. Israel and its story is no different in that Many of the failures of Israel, the nation before God, are in a sense a cautionary tale of the transgressions the church today is prone to commit in our own uh, communal lives as well as our personal lives, right? Thomas Schreiner puts it this way, the experiences of Israel in the wilderness had a typological role. That's a very important term, typological. There's a lot of things uh, in the Bible that pastors and preachers will preach allegorically right so you might hear something like oh you know someday you will encounter the goliath of your life and you like david need to conquer it right that's taking something in my opinion allegorically out of context and using it in a broader sense that doesn't really apply or make sense in its original context right we don't want to do stuff like that or like jeremiah 29 11 promise to israel uh, God has a plan for you. And then we just take that word, God has a plan for you, or that phrase, and then we apply it to everything, right? It's like athletes will do this all the time, right? Athletes will always put Jeremiah 29, 11 on their shoes or something, and they'll be like, God has a plan for me. I mean, if you look at the context of Jeremiah 29, we're dealing with Babylonian exile of Israel due to their transgressions against God and a plan to free them from that. But anyways, that kind of stuff. So allegorically is not what we're talking about. Typological. Right? There's a typology across scripture, like Adam in the garden, the priest in the sanctuary of the garden, and then Israel and the high priest, the high priest of the sanctuary of the temple and the nation of Israel, and then leading into the precursor of the church, right? And the believers, uh, the high priest Jesus, our priest Jesus, and the sanctuary of the church, right? So you see sort of this typological, right? It's a type of church. It's a type of this, right? So Israel and the church are paralleled in that way. Uh, I hope all of that made sense. Anyways, this is really important. 
to understand that word because I'm going to use it a lot. Anyways, back to the quote. The experiences of Israel in the wilderness had a typological role, anticipating and pointing forward to the church of Jesus Christ for the end times have now dawned with Christ's coming. If the church is to look back at the failures of Israel as a warning, we also have the greater benefit of looking back, back at Christ, Christ himself, who fulfilled all that Adam and Israel could not. Where they failed, he didn't. And so we have in Christ a perfect example, and in Israel, an example of warning. I hope that makes sense. The passage today here essentially gives us, in the first four verses, a reminder of the grace and mercy that Israel had and was given under God's providence over them and like extended, that grace is extended to the church today. Not, you know, we didn't pass through a sea and, you know, have cloud, a cloud to follow and that kind of stuff. But the grace of God continues to be extended to us today. He was faithful to them, Israel, in saving them and preserving them, right? That's language we can apply to the church today. Time and time again. However, they ultimately sinned against God. And so the ones who wandered the desert for 40 years, ultimately, other than like Caleb and, and Joshua and his household and, and their lineage, could not enter the promised land, if you remember that, right? They had to be wiped out. Even Moses could not enter the promised land. And the next generation were the ones who did. Remember, Paul has just taught the Corinthians Run the race so as to win the eschatological prize, eternal prize of Christ and eternality with him forever. And that involves discipline. It involves self-control in areas such as the ones in which Israel failed. And we, in that example, uh, a failure in controlling, uh, we partake in that example, of failure in controlling what they consumed, namely food or idols. Right? We learn in this example a failure of controlling what they consumed. Later, if you see the quote in verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So he's going to tie all of this together. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Eating and drinking, enjoying liberty, uh, without discipline, and without self-control can lead to greater sin, ultimately idolatry. And of course, we're dealing with food Sacrifice to idols. So you can see all the connectors starting to build here, okay? Verses 1 to 4. A clear emphasis is made by Paul in these verses that the blessings from God were experienced by, look at the key word. Do you see it in verses 1 to 4? The word is all. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink you see that word there it's clearly pointed for you and it's repeated for purpose he notes that all of this was experienced by all of israel every member of it he notes this no less than five times in the first three verses as i just read all of israel experienced the guidance and presence of god's cloud god's deliverance of israel through the sea God's establishment of a theocratic community under the leadership of Moses and the provision of God of food and the provision of God from God of drink. Every person of this community of God lived and survived and continued to live under God's provision and grace, finding life in him now and finding life 
in him later. The true reality of the Christian life first exemplified in the Old Testament Israelites. Furthermore, Paul speaks of a rock from which they drank. We can hear the reference to the rock which Moses struck to provide water, but that was a physical rock. He's talking about something else here, right? Uh, But what Paul says is so much more interesting here. He says, this spiritual rock that was with them in their presence, this rock was Christ. Paul observes in the medium of provision of food and drink, the essential presence of Christ in that community, thus establishing the reality that both those before Christ's incarnation and post-incarnation, all of the community of God is provided for and preserved by the means of Christ and our union with him and his presence among us. Verse 5, all of a sudden a U-turn. This verse brings everything to a halt. It's like grace, 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 all I've experienced. But with all this grace, provision, and faithfulness from God, it is heavily contrasted by what? Israel's sin. This sin leads to them being laid low, strewn in the wilderness. The life outside of God, even with physical provision, cannot continue to live without Him and His grace. For brothers and sisters, we know this true. There is only life in God. True life. Abundant life. The lesson of this section is that just because we experience the common grace of God, Everyone does this, right? Everyone experiences the common grace of God. The common provisions of life, everyone experiences too, to varying degrees. The basic needs of existence, and we participate in in the experience of, of God's power every day. This does not mean you should get arrogant in your security. We can go to church, we can be baptized, we can have Christian community and go on missions and have Christian on our profiles, and yet still displease the Lord and find ourselves on the wrong side of that equation. Again, a reminder of the people of Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord, did I not cry out, right? Did I not cast demons in your name? Did I not do these things for you? Be gone. For I never knew you are the words of the Lord. As well as a likely response to the Corinthians, the arrogant ones anyway, who may have been searching for security in the sacraments, the things they did, rather than the object of our faith, our trust in Him. Don't we do this a lot ourselves? The Corinthian argument could have been formed in this manner, not worded like this, but in this way. Well, I'm a Christian since I do these things and have done these things, so I can go to a meal at an idol's temple and I don't have to think twice about it. I know I'm Christian. And Paul kind of deals with some of this questioning in Romans, right? As if grace is some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card from all the terrible things you do. It's not the appropriate response to grace. I've talked about this multiple times. The appropriate response to grace is humility, gratitude, and obedience. When you get married, okay, two of you are, you have the security of knowing You have a ring on your finger and a document to prove that you're married, right? Commissioned and witnessed by God and his people. But that is not the security of your marriage, is it? 
A document is a document. A ring is a ring. The security of your message, or sorry, your marriage, is knowing what? This person loves me and demonstrates this on a daily basis. It's the relationship that cements and secures that marital bond, right? The document, you may have signed it, doesn't mean you actually love the person. I hope that makes sense. Don't look at sacraments and practices as a means to cement yourself, to secure yourself, as if you can go to the Lord one day and say, I did these things. I'm good, aren't I? It's not what you did. I always teach this. It's what Christ has done for you that cements that relationship. Second point, the warning of idolatry in verses 6 to 13. This section makes it clear that Israel's example is a warning to us all. And Paul also goes on to explain the nature of the judgment Israel received as mentioned in verse 5. He then concludes with a word of admonishment that God will preserve his remnant, his people, for they will not be tested beyond their ability, but rather their perseverance will attest to their faith and his faithfulness. Verse 6, Paul states here that the example of Israel is given for the purpose of revealing the danger of craving things that are not God and things that are not of God. For to crave that which is not God or of God is to say this, that God, you are not enough. And that is where the heart of idolatry is birthed. Thistleton notes for us, what incurred God's displeasure was the craving of those who were not satisfied with, with what God provided. Craving is the root attitude that verses 7 to 13 will spell out in terms of concrete attitude. Let's look at verses 7 to 13, but let's start with 7 to 12. If there are five blessings Israel graciously enjoyed under God, as we mentioned in the first four verses, here Paul notes the four destructive practices and attitudes stemming from the heart that craves more than God. Idolatry, sexual immorality, doubt, and despair. Yes, there is a liberty in the Christian life that frees one to view things in true light, true perspective. But that liberty should be used with wisdom as well. Looseness in light of liberty leads to an undisciplined life that certainly spirals to sin. Exodus 32, a freed nation of Israel that observed and witnessed the ten plagues against Egypt, the splitting of the sea, still sought to build a golden calf, which led to what? As quoted here, eating and drinking and sexual orgies. It's almost as if all our cravings outside of God ultimately lead to these things. Eating, drinking, playing, and sex. Right? That's what all of these things ultimately just lead to. Eating what we want, drinking what we want, playing when we want to play, and having sex when we want to. Perhaps Paul's concern involved this idea of being loose in one area, like this temple feast participation. He knew it could lead to more. Right? If we open the door to one thing, it's just going to continue to open the door to more things. That's the danger of liberal Christianity. 
right? As soon as you say, well, some parts of the Bible are authentic and valid, we can't say the whole thing is inerrant. You know, most of it is, but we got to take out some of the things that are a little bit, you know, maybe worth skepticism, a little untrustworthy from my perspective. And so people do this in liberal Christianity. They say, I don't think the Bible's inerrant. I think there are parts of it are, but, you know, other parts are not. So you pick and choose the verses you want to believe. Well, what happens when you do that? How does it stop? How do you stop looking at the Bible that way? How do you then conclude this is trustworthy and this is not? Liberal Christianity will also open the door to things and practices that are not condoned in Scripture. And once you open the door to those things, you say, this is contextual, but this is not. This is literal, but this is not. This teaching is invalid now because of the contextual times we live in. Paul didn't mean it for it to be universal in this way, blah, 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 right? You open the door to these things and the cracks start coming. Look at the, look at the Presbyterian Church today in Canada and the United States. You open the door to one thing. And you think it's harmless because, oh, we want to accept these people. We want, these, we want everyone to feel good in church. You do that? You know what happens? Yeah, you'll feel good. But you won't be good before the Lord. I'd rather feel good later when I'm with Christ forever. Right? Perhaps... This was Paul's concern, that it could lead to more, a looseness in this area. So not only does it stumble others, it too can lead to your own stumbling. Verse 12 is an appropriate warning that those who think they stand, he heeds them. I hope you do not fall. Why do we enjoy putting ourselves in spots and situations where we're able to fall. Why do we enjoy that? The belief that God would never leave them nor forsake them was prevalent in Israel's theology, and perhaps it fueled the selfish pride or arrogance in the Corinthians that no matter what they did, they could not fall because God would not allow it. They tested God then, right? That He must keep your, His word to preserve them. How foolish is this? Lord, I'm going to sin, but I'm a Christian, so I know you're going to uphold me. You'll preserve me, because you said so yourself. So here I am, woo, I'm going to sin. Live my life the way I want to, and you will preserve me, because you promised it. If my kid did that, it's like, Dad, I know you love me. Mom, I know you love me. You have to clothe me. You have to feed me. You have to give me these things. You have to provide for me. So I'm going to do whatever I want. And haha, you have to love me because you birthed me. Oh my gosh. I would like, I would want to destroy that child. <laughs> like, right? I would want to take away all of those things from that child. You ungrateful, spoiled little brat. How dare you? And that is at times our attitude before God. As Numbers 25 reveals and appears to be Paul's evidence here, the covenant stands on faith in Christ. So why do anything that could lead to a life that turns us away from him? A common trait Paul observed in the Corinthians with the Israelites was moaning. The word for moaning is grumbling. Someone who complains, whines, 
moans, grumbles, is never satisfied, is always demanding more and more and looking at the negative things in life. That is the attitude of the ungrateful. The one who sees themselves deserving of more. Some come to God this way. But my urge and heed to you, along with Paul, is this. Be grateful. Always. Scripture teaches. Finally, verse 13. This last verse teaches of God's promises upholding his people. But it demands obedience and discipline in the godly. Shriner puts it this way. Verse 13 confirms that promise and warning work together to strengthen the Corinthians and the church, I would say, as they run the race to the end. Promise and warning. This verse, in a way, juxtaposes the previous one in which Paul warns of falling by not obeying God. And yet, the faithfulness of the believer is is preserved by divine grace. There is a majestic tension here, but one that Paul prescribes as the healthy understanding in our minds and balance for the Christian in pursuit of holiness. What I see is a message first to the proud and the strong. Be humble that you would not fall. And then to the weak and in despair. Be strong for the Lord is with you and he will preserve you. A warning and a promise. A framework within which the the Christian spectrum operates. My conclusion for today is quite simple. I have just a few takeaways I see in the text. And I've just summed all of these up for you in five quick statements and then a final thought. The first is this. There's a wealth of Christian record and history of past believers who struggle through the same repetitive sins that exist in our own lives today. We need to access these narratives of these people of faith and we need to heed the warning that those stories elude. So one really um, critical sort of practice that has transformed me um, or helped in the transforming of my life, I don't know if you believe that I'm getting holier, but uh, one thing at least mentally has helped me is reading the biographies of Christians, past, missionaries, uh, men and women of the faith who are by all accounts, extraordinary, but not extraordinary because they themselves are, but because God preserved them in so many ways. Reading stories of like people, uh, Jim Elliot, you know, Livingstone, uh, Wilberforce, like these are amazing stories of men and women who just were extraordinary for the Lord in their service and in their life. Uh, obstacles that you and I face on a daily basis, right? And they're not better than you in any way, right? They're just people too. That has helped me tremendously. So read, if there's a resolution, or is it called a resolution? New Year's resolution that you can make for 2022? Maybe it's read a couple biographies of extraordinary Christians. I, may, I might start handing out biographies for your birthdays next year. I think it's extraordinary. Um, number two, the believer is the one who observes a shift in their desires. I've spoken of this before. One way we can find assurance of salvation in our lives is a shift in desire, right? 
Do you see your desires moving from the things temporal to the things eternal? And I know you're not fully there yet. I certainly am not. But are you getting there? Is a trajectory there? From the things of the earth to the things of God. Our cravings are to be for God. Point number three. Do not assume grace in your life. You don't deserve grace at all to begin with. Let alone all the time. Right? So do not test God so as to satisfy your own cravings. Grace is to be received in humility and in gratitude. Four, this is a simple one. Do not complain. There's nothing really worth complaining about because you're preserved by grace. We should all be dead in our sins. And here we are, alive in Christ. There's nothing worth complaining about uh, for the believer who has their trust and hope in Christ. Finally, fifth takeaway. Take heed of God's warning not to live in presumption of salvation. Also take heed of God's promises to uphold you and preserve you. Live not, as Moltmann famously talks about, the two sins that lead to devastation, presumption and despair. Living, assuming one is saved, living as if I can never be saved. Somewhere in the middle, that healthy balance that Paul spoke of is where we ought to be. Live instead in gratitude of grace undeserved and in hope to come in Christ. That's where we ought to be, brothers and sisters. So if you lean on despair end, maybe you need to fill your life with the promises of the Lord. And if you lean on, like me, in the presumption end, where my arrogance and my cockiness and my pride get to me the most, I need to be humbled in knowing, right? Grace of God is undeserved. I live every day in the provision of Christ. That's where Christ centers us, right? And that's where we ought to be. The issue throughout has been what the Corinthians can or should not consume. Their desire was to eat and drink freely what they wanted. How fitting, brothers and sisters, that our greater ancestors of Adam and Eve would have likely advised the Corinthians that eating and drinking whatever you choose is probably not the best idea. Paul makes a powerful theological point in seeing Christ the rock in the presence of Israel in the wilderness as what? A provider and preserver of life. And what do we get from Christ? But a body broken for us and blood poured out for us that we may eat and drink from that which he provides, eternal life in our union with him. Yes, we can eat and drink as we please. But what better food or drink could we possibly find beyond Christ our Savior? Let's pray and reflect on what we've learned today.